gentlemen, this is Democracy Manifest. The Culture and Anarchy Podcast. It is a horrible idea that there is somebody who owns us, who makes us, who supervises us, who can convict us of court crime, just for what we can. watching. We have to get through. The Culture and Anarchy Podcast. All of this could be part of a plan. It looks to me like a place where you'd get revenge on your crazy professors. Have a look at the headlock here. His technique was perfect. It is sweet and wonderful. G-Saw gang, have a plan. Postmodernist nonsense. They intend to hijack the gold. Yeah, I say, well, how would you describe the prison scene? I say, baby, it was just wrong to wrong. Oh, his technique Everyone was perfect. These odds. Cult, cult, culture and anarchy. Sweet, sweet, Gentlemen, sweet, sweet, sweet. is Democracy Manifest. Welcome to the Culture in Anarchy podcast. For more audio and videos, please subscribe to the Culture in Anarchy podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, and YouTube. And follow me by my Twitter handle at anarchy underscore culture. If you'd like to make a small contribution to the show through my Patreon account, please visit www.culture-anarchy.com slash donate.html. And if you haven't already, go ahead and stop by iTunes and leave a great rating for our show. We have just released our first edition of The Dial, our quarterly literary magazine. The issue is available on our website, and print copies can be ordered through most online retailers. We will be podcasting selections of poetry from The Dial at the end of each month. So if you would like to contribute poetry and hear your works promulgated throughout the world, please see our submission guidelines at www.culture-anarchy.com. The Culture and Anarchy podcast presents A Rationalist Critique of Deconstruction Demystifying Post-Structuralism and Derrida's Science of the Non Part 9 Difference and Buridan's ass. Indifference with regard to preference as a proxy for the notion of a cost has often perplexed those who stood up before the value paradox and a central epistemological problem resolved by microeconomic rationalism. Namely, how do we have knowledge of costs and can preference live side by side with indifference simultaneously? Aristotle, in his Decaylo, as if in demonstration of this ethical principle of the golden mean, a classical difference, posits a paradox in which a man is situated exactly between two poles. On one pole sits a tempting quantity of food, and on the other pole sits an equally tempting quantity of drink. The man, when he is hungry, starving, and dehydrated, is faced with a decision. He must choose to travel to one pole to sate his hunger, or to travel to the other pole to quench his thirst. Because the man is faced with the need to constantly travel between two poles or to perish on the journey between food and water, Aristotle suggests that he will not choose between either of the poles. He will remain where he is, since either option is equally tempting. The man would choose to travel to one pole or the other if he were able to determine to which pole he was more or less indifferent. 
But because the temptations of both poles are qualitatively equal, the man refrains from action. What Aristotle canvassed in his logical problem was a problem of equal values, the objective equalization of values by a philosopher. Contrary to this fantasy, human action presupposes the inequality of values. Aristotle does not address the problem that humankind cannot sit indifferently between all available courses of action without perishing eventually from a loss of life achieved through idleness, or perhaps a hunger strike or a suicide attempt, and that even this indifference is an exercise of some preference. If alternatives could be equal, then riding one's bicycle could be of equal value with not riding one's bicycle. Either an individual rides a bicycle or she does not and she prefers to do one or the other, or else to do something else. There is not a middle state implying both actions and choices on the margin, or nothing at all, since nothing at all would presuppose that we have no knowledge of something that is predicated of a subject, and thus we would know nothing. Where Vilfredo Pareto failed in economics was in the presumption that indifference plays a part in actions undertaken. Granted, we can, in hindsight, always point to the alternatives foregone by an actor when we examine historical human actions from the negative space where all alternatives inhabit some intertemporal margin. However, we cannot explain how we know that alternatives exist as isolated and fixed quantities in strictly empirical terms in hindsight. We never experience the alternative reality that would have existed had the woman who had chosen to ride her bike simply chosen that she was indifferent to riding her bike and so had remained seated on her couch. That tricky conjunction, or, has a very powerful role in language and logic. Or stands between reality and possibility. On one side sits the alternative experience that an individual chooses by preferring it as a means to utility. On the other side lies the vast and waste desert of alternatives foregone, which will never be experienced at that particular moment in time. If a woman decides to ride her bicycle, we deduce that she prefers riding her bicycle to not riding her bicycle. This is not to say that we can plot an indifference curve to show where she was more or less indifferent to riding her bicycle, except as examples of valid non-alternatives in historical analysis, if she decides to sing or dance instead. Nor yet that she was equally indifferent to riding and not riding a bicycle if she chooses to go for a walk instead. Nor could we prevent her from riding her bicycle by stealing that bicycle from her, or by taxing it from her possession, and then declare that because this option is now denied her, and that because she was formerly equally indifferent to the two other activities, say to dancing or singing, that she now has more options on her margin than she had before, when she chose to ride her bicycle instead of dancing or singing. The rationing of the woman's time is not limited to riding bicycles or not riding bicycles. She may ration her time to any pursuit that she is capable of undertaking through any means at her disposal. The opposite of riding her bicycle is not limited to what is identified in not riding her bicycle, represented as the thing specifically identified as absent, which is bicycle riding, in the same way that the opposite of black is not white, but instead not black, or any color whatsoever. The opposite pull to riding a bicycle is, in fact, any other action whatsoever. Not riding includes dancing and singing, in that mistaken binary of riding, a definite pole, and non-riding, an indefinite pole of all available alternatives within that non-repeatable temporal frame. 
A woman is more indifferent to not riding her bicycle than riding it should she choose to ride her bicycle. But she is also more indifferent to dancing in the rain, robbing a bank, committing suicide, or spontaneously smashing her bedroom windows with a baseball bat. Aha! the reader may exclaim upon encountering the notion that the woman is more indifferent to not riding her bicycle than riding it, or to the notion that she is less indifferent to riding her bicycle than to robbing a bank. If indifference can be more or less related to preference than some other indifference in the indefinite non-categories of not riding her bicycle, namely singing or dancing, which includes all possible actions through available means at that time in that local space, then can one not then determine that indifference plays a part in preferences exercised in actions? The answer is that more indifferent now becomes the same thing as less preferable than what was exercised in action, and that we have only changed the definition of indifference to a position on the margin as an alternative foregone, something else for which a good or service might have been exchanged but was deemed less desirable than what was preferred at that moment in time in space. We have not changed economic theory or achieved some new insight. We have simply tailored our terminology in new letters in order to calculate backwards in time on her behalf as if there were such a thing as interpersonal comparisons of utility. And this tailoring does not enter the timeless and placeless world of universal theory, since it is particular and actual, bound by time and place. The question now arises as to why someone would wish to evaluate indifference as more or less preferable on an intertemporal margin, in instances in which a woman is denied access to a resource in her rightful possession, such as denying her access to a bicycle, to then analyze her ordering of preferences. Could there be a use for such a theory? Well, in a redistributive democratic society that strives to institutionalize socialism as a means to wealth equalization, one could utilize indifference theory to justify violent and coercive intervention with private property based on a self-contradictory moral position aiming at the redistribution of wealth in the interest of fairness and equality. One could not stake that position without self-contradiction, since one would doubtless prefer a state of affairs in which a state does not steal justifiable property from individuals arbitrarily in the interest of paying off its cronies, even as the state prefers a state of affairs in which state officials are not subject to retribution by the woman from whom those officials have stolen a bicycle. But one could make the argument, and poorly at that. Indifference theory really does not have much use beyond that socialistic outlet, except as a relic of consumer choice theory or as a process that roughly outlines the calculations that advertisers make when intuiting what consumers might be willing to give up. In consumer choice theory, indifference is more a tool of marketing, of anticipating increases in marginal units required in order to overcome a consumer's preference to refrain from exchanging goods or money, for some ratio of goods that the seller and supplier prefers the consumer to prefer. And so it is a harmless, untrue theory, since it is not theoretical, but instead thymological, yet relies upon the ultimate given of marginal utility theory. At best, it is an exercise in unnecessary mathematics, which logic already explains better without the symbols and curves. At its worst, it can only be used for marketing for ultimately bad ends, untruths, in the service of anti-economic illogic codified into an ethical system to promote violence and coercion. If applied to the sphere of communication, 
Aristotle's paradox describes the deconstructionist when faced with rhetoric. He may choose a rhetorical analysis or a logical analysis and follow either to a logical conclusion, or he may simply sit in his insatiate indifference. Even on the grounds of structuralism's presumption that language is the logical structure of mind, this would be impossible since indifference would presuppose interest. A deconstructionist may choose to define the terms of an argument, howsoever the Navajo pangender heterosexual wishes, and even to select new definitions. He may choose to be difficult and uncooperative, and to infuse racial prejudices into words and arguments that display no objective criteria for racial prejudice in order to question the class interests of a writer or a critic. This remains a possibility. And it is a possibility often explored in post-structuralist criticism. The problem, then, is not a problem of interpretation, communication, value units, and words, or anything of the sort. The problem lies in the fact of human action, which already presupposes values in the logical structure of mind over and against indifference. Indifference would be, despite its pretensions to the realm of the other, the expression of a preference in action that rejects the writer or critic as the new other. Furthermore, one generally has to engage in historicist speculation in order to identify the spirit of the age from which the historicist will then pronounce some social force as binding upon the individual. A phrase like Western civilization may express something along the lines of the greatest civilization, white civilization, individual rights, democratic republics, diverse melting pots, corrupt capitalist economies, socialist totalitarian states, monarchies, and so on, depending upon the individual uttering and analyzing that phrase. The phrase is inherently vague, since the concept is so large, diverse, and individuated as to be evacuated of any precise characteristics in the aggregate. But if one were to say that Western civilization is better than African civilization, The features of such civilizations and their merits and demerits must be considered both critically and normatively through time, economic theory, ethics, laws, morality, culture, and liberty. Western civilization is not inherently better than another civilization. Hitler, Stalin, and Mussolini, I suppose, are actually features of Western civilization. The triumph of unadulterated economic democracy, not checked by balances of power or free markets, and socialism, even though they stand in opposition to the hallmark of Western civilization's most lauded ideals, individual liberty, art, and so on, as interpreted by this American libertarian. Western civilization is better than African civilization for some stipulated reason, or else it is not. Like Herman Melville's comical creation, Bartleby the Scrivener, The Derridean, when faced with the necessity of pronouncing his incisive decision upon some particular facet of Western civilization's successes, pronounces his preference. I would prefer not to. Western civilization is not better in any sense than African civilization in a deconstructionist mode. The dichotomy is, indeed, a complex dichotomy. But this does not presuppose that no qualitative distinctions can be made so as to express a preference or to express superiority of one over the other in an ethical sense in particular inquiries. The complexity and diversity of the ideas encapsulated by the phrases may not allow for aggregate comparisons. Socialism, its Bolsheviks, Democrats, and its fascists, certainly is a great black stain upon Western civilization, 
and the socialists tore through Africa in the mid-1960s, destroying countries in North Africa like a plague of poverty in the midst of poverty. But side by side with the anti-economic illogic of socialism and Western civilization stand the principles of individual liberty, the common law, and free markets, the triumph of the Bill of Rights, the Enlightenment's libertarian theoreticians, and the Declaration of Independence, though not perhaps the Constitution. How can these disparate movements be encapsulated by the same phrase? Certainly, the Declaration of Independence supersedes anything on the African continent as a historical artifact capable of communicating truly ethical universal principles, but perhaps there are principles in African civilization that have tended to pursue the same principles of self-determination without evidentiary documents that we may consult today for proof. As critics of ideas and principles, the Derridean's preference to not prefer expressing a preference is not indifference, an aporia, since the preference is a choice. The Derridean prefers a civilization where she has a choice to not express a preference, as opposed to a theocratic Saudi society in which she may, in fact, be threatened with mutilation or death if she expresses the wrong preference, as some imam interprets her preference, or if her expression of, of not expressing a preference will be interpreted as heresy and apostasy such as ambivalence towards some sacred cow of Sharia law, or, in some doctrines, the literal truth of Muhammad's night journey upon a flying horse, and thus face reprisal. The disutility of labor may, if individuals do not face the repercussions of scarcity, entice individuals to prefer to not do anything at all, such as idling, loitering, or staring off into space. Deconstruction is thus not so much a method of critical analysis, it is something more akin to griping and complaining about any preference undertaken by a critic, a speaker, a poet, or a writer. Deconstruction tends to be more sophisticated than rhapsodies about why blue is not better than orange because Milton and Browning are more complex than blue and orange in a literary sense, but the results are pretty much the same. Critiques of preference, if they are not rooted in criticism of inconsistency, logic, method, epistemology, and so on, will tend to be critiques of preference. We may debate whether Milton was a better poet than Browning until the end of time, and the discussions may be more entertaining and fruitful of abstract thought than whether blue is better than the color orange, but both are critiques of preference. Because the former dichotomy is productive of more debate, assuming a literate critic on the other end of the conversation, and reflection than the latter, which really will not get very far since blue and orange will likely not stir up the same emotions and connections that Browning and Milton will in a literary framework, this does not change the fact that literary criticism tends to be a critique of specific values if it goes beyond traditional formalisms of language, symbolism, history, and rhythm. Literary criticism will always be culturally oriented as a means to promoting certain kinds of values. A free individual seeks valuable self-reflection and conversation to expand one's mind through experience. Literary criticism tinged with Marxism will suffer from Marxism, an extrinsic value system, in the same way that biblical exegesis tends to suffer from the inconsistencies inherent in the doctrines of Christianity, Judaism, Islam, and Mormonism. Criticism and literary criticism are two different disciplines, the former is the practice of logic, of the reduction and elimination of self-contradiction, 
to get at the clearest picture of truth, something that can be predicated of a subject with the fewest self-contradictions and empirical inconsistencies, while the latter is the practice of education for specific kinds of valuation, such as respecting Jewish dietary law, respecting the doctrine of the Trinity, or rejecting it perhaps, if a follower of Arian's heresy, respecting Islamic doctrine about diet and dress, or even utilizing all three Abrahamic religions to justify a fourth-way New World religion like Mormonism in its depiction of Christ's sojourn upon the American continent to evangelize to the Native Americans. listening to the culture and anarchy podcast please do remember to stop by and visit my website for more content at www.culture-anarchy.com if you sign up for our free newsletter and join the email list you receive access to free ebooks including the text for a rationalist critique of deconstruction and in march 2017 the spirit of market anarchy Coming up later this year on the Culture and Anarchy podcast, we will be debuting several episodic series. First up, The Shadow of All Doubts, in which I chronicle sketches from the history of skepticism and free thought by analyzing conflicts between individualists and both state and church. The other series that will premiere are The Heist, historical sketches from the world's gold confiscations, which begins with the story of King Philip IV and the Knights Templar and proceeds all the way through FDR and beyond. Another series, The Jacobin Book Club, Neoconservatism, A Requiem, and finally, a rationalist take on the history of literary criticism. Towards the end of the year, we will be moving to a work of philosophy and religion entitled The God Function, Deus Ex Grammatica, wherein I lay out the world's first argument from grammar. Atheist and theist may in fact both be incorrect, where it concerns the rational concept of God insofar as the concept of a rationally conceived God arises out of a priori grammar. There's lots of exciting developments coming up, so please come see us at www.culture-anarchy.com. Marxist criticism is a criticism aimed at rejecting property rights, free markets, voluntary exchange, market prices, and hence, such criticism is anti-economic illogic codified into an ethical system. Criticism based on free market principles prizes property rights, economics, rationalism, logic, empiricism, and voluntary exchange, and as such promotes the best ideas for achieving material betterment 
and relieving scarcity in Western civilization. In this sense, Western civilization, or these latterly particular facets of Western civilization, are better than the fruits of African civilization, where a culture of property rights, individual liberty, rationalism, economics, logic, and voluntary exchange did not have so dramatic and beneficial an impact to a culture of liberty and free thinking. African civilization featured much anti-economic illogic codified into ethical systems. In this, the socialists on both continents are very bad, even though perhaps not equally bad. One may reject the idea that Western civilization is better than African civilization based on particular truths, that some participants and leaders of Western countries preyed upon Africa, that American slavery preyed upon the peoples of Africa, and so on. But one must also confront the truths that African civilization did not also bear the fruits of logic, land ownership, property rights. The word slavery is derived from Slav, where white Eastern Europeans were long sold in Egypt, often by white merchants and Islamic slavers, and traded on African markets, sometimes prized for their white flesh. Individual liberty, rationalism, economics, and voluntary exchange were not held as highly in esteem across diverse African cultures. The problem is not that one civilization is better or worse in some abstract sense, but in what particular sense one was better than the other with regard to universally preferable behaviors. And indeed, there were undoubtedly African tribes with superb reputations regarding some of the best libertarian Western ideals. One of the problems and studies of that kind, however, is that records of such civilizations in Africa tend to be absent or rare, and are generally not that reliable because of the dearth of self-consistent scientific thought, as disciplines that increase historical accuracy of the records. One may be ignorant, arrogant, correct, or incorrect, or perhaps indifferent altogether as to the idea that Western civilization is better than African civilization, but that indifference is a preference to do something else altogether, and so is not indifference in itself so much as it is a rejection of one definite alternative in the gamut of available actions. Jean Buridan, a 14th century French philosopher, rehashed the Aristotelian paradox in a discussion of free will and moral determinism. Though Buridan originally replaced Aristotle's man with a dog, critics of Buridan's preposterous binary opposition have since replaced his dog with an ass. In Buridan's paradox, the ass is situated equidistant between two stacks of hay and two pails of water, arranged perpendicularly as the crossing of an X and Y axis, all of which exert an equal temptation upon the ass. The ass, like Aristotle's man, chooses neither of the bales of hay and neither of the pails of water, since it cannot come to a decision about which one serves a greater value on the margin where the values of each are qualitatively equal. Aristotle, like Buridan and Marx, also fell prey to the trap of intrinsic value and undecidability, even in the proposition given, since equally tempting is an impossibility. One is tempted to think of the phrase equally tempting as a valid interpretation of calculation, since it describes hesitation to act from a third-party perspective while the actor debates internally between two available alternatives. In this, the phrase equally tempting is actually an alternative interpretation of the actual preference displayed, since there is another alternative, to refrain from acting until the actor decides how to ration time and energy in order to express desire. In his haste to rush onwards towards difference and difference, 
So Derrida tumbles into his aporia to arrive at his own undecidability. One might compare Buridan's ass to the ass depicted on the cover of Alexander Pope's 1729 Dunciad Variorum, which is a masterpiece of English satire. Pope's ass is faced with a monumental decision. He must decide to tread a path between two documents, the Flying Post, often a source of cultural and literary criticism leveled at the Scriblarians, Pope, Swift, and Gay, and the Baker's Reprisal, named for Sir James Baker, who hurled Billingsgate at Pope and Swift in the Gulliveriana and the Alexandriana. The ass is burdened by a stack of second-rate literature that is strapped to its back, upon which an owl perches. The owl is a classical icon of wisdom, but its nighttime arrival nonetheless heralds the long and dreadful darkness of the goddess Dullness, to whom the Dunciad is dedicated. The humble ass seems to have grasped the Aristotelian dilemma. What is the point of going forward into the night thus laden? How shall he choose a path, laden as he is with things which any reasoning individual, as defined by Pope, would treat with indifference, treading a path lined by the scribblings of so many terrible poets and critics? Deconstruction, as a critique of binary opposition, is, as we have observed, much like the man in Aristotle's Paradox. I will refrain from employing the libel leveled at Buridan's much maligned pooch, even though a trace of the ass remains. Accordingly, since neither raw nor cooked has logical priority, the positions are correlative. There are many ambiguities, differences in metonymy, synonymy, antonymy, that arise in the polar concepts when those tools are applied by an actor to language. In the deconstructionist mode, Rather than choosing to define those polar concepts by rushing towards their value and communication, one may just as well sit in the free play that arises within the shadows of the binary opposition. In other words, one may just as well sit motionless within the confines of deconstruction as a counter-structuralist philosophy of indifference towards any objectivity, a definite subjective valuation justified by argumentation, arrived at through binary opposition. Deconstruction could only ever thrive in a world in which the demand for meaning remained in place by third parties who wished to exchange logical arguments for satisfaction and common sense. Someone, somewhere, has to be satisfied if we are ourselves only satisfied by pointing out to an individual who is satisfied that his meaning has more than one meaning. In communication, the trilateral exchange, actor plus language and speech plus satisfaction versus silence, always involves cooperation, which is the death of aporia. The goods involved in the trilateral exchange bring about the demand for interpretation in the first place within teleological operations. Deconstruction, like a Bernanke, Keynes, Krugman, or a Greenspan, keeps pumping out credit, or advocating that we do so, and waste paper marked with meaningful statements, the rags of things that did once exist. Deconstruction is the science of the rags of things that did once exist, every historical cost, alternative foregone, by rational analysis. Deconstruction holds that it is a theory of difference, which is difference that is different from its structural self. I disagree. Deconstruction as a theory of difference that is different from itself is really nothing more than a kind of linguistic offshoot of consumer choice theory and as such, plots and difference curves with regard to literary interpretation and meaning. Of course, I do not believe that any deconstructionist is aware of this fact, and neither are the growing hordes of 
post-structuralist Derrida's in the making, and anti-deconstructionist curmudgeons amongst the social conservatives who would not object to having university students plot in difference curves in Econ 101, but would object to deconstruction in the humanities. Difference involves the kind of deferral of meaning to other quanta of meaning, to which the original speaker, reader, or writer was more or less indifferent, since deconstruction is forever sifting through potential alternatives foregone. According to deconstruction, the individual who encounters a text brings to the text all of the meanings tied up in the source's indifference curve, and some of these are equal. Into the space creeps multiculturalism, which is the notion that no one culture is inherently better than any other culture. They are simply different, as sufficient for different peoples. None of the citizens, socialistic, authoritarian, theocratic, might be said to be better than another, since values are objectively revealed in history and not subjective. In a market analysis of goods on the margin, and not non-goods on a non-existent intertemporal margin, a good is more valuable to some homo agents than to others. Some indifferences are more believable than others when we humor the speculative endeavors of deconstructionists who play with goods in hindsight, but none are as believable as the most likely meaning established by common sense, context, empathy, sympathy, and man-on-the-street psychology through intersubjective transactions. We saw one such example of deconstruction's introduction of the intertemporal margin in the analysis of Browning's imitative craft in earlier parts of this discussion, and we eventually shifted Browning's focus towards the capitalist exploitation theory of Marxian hermeneutics and several other frames of reference. Once the Derridaeans have identified that there are multiform meanings for tropes, metaphors, and words themselves, then they engage in a series of teleological operations to retroactively determine meaning from a distance in the hopes of proactively enforcing an objective valuation or meaning. This is not a problem, so long as one makes an argument with some persuasion. Debates about art are all about persuasion. We saw how one might deconstruct a text in such a way in the discussion of the ring in the book, wherein I pointed a way to Browning's own metaphors through Plato and Milton, because a humanities professor has an interest in promoting certain kinds of inquiry, the Socratic method, and not Plato's totalitarian republic, and Milton's republicanism, which critiqued theocratic republicans like Cromwell, as well as monarchical absolutism. Since, the Derridean concludes, There are no objective meanings that can be established for rhetorical passages, and rhetoric is what is used to argue for logical truths that are supposed to be entirely objective and singular, despite the binary opposition. The rhetoric always exceeds the logic of the text. What the Derridean notes here is important. My own empirical knowledge, which is my knowledge gained through observation and experience, Plato and Milton, is called into play when I confront Browning's imitative craft. This part of deconstruction is undeniable, for its underlying truth is simply common sense and a part of human nature. Only I knows what I know, hence the cogito in cogito ergo sum, even though another I may know the same information. Both of us have a cogito, but neither of us has a Marxian cogitamos ergo sum. It is true that the rhetoric exceeds the logic of the text, in the same sense that different people may interpret the same text in different ways. A person ignorant of Plato and Milton will not draw in intertextual cues for interpretation of Browning's text the way that I would, and alternatives for interpretation do in fact exist, 
such as the marketplace, such as subjective human valuation. But these different interpretations are not in things and words. They are in the minds of people, not in the objective world. Now, continues the Derridean, because the reader's own subjective experiences provide the only interpretive framework available, there is nothing outside of the text. Namely, all interpretation is a misrepresentation of the world as it is filtered through the senses. As empirical knowledge molds the wax-like mind, the mind squints its eyes and attempts to make out the almighty runes that are inscribed upon the visual cortex by the external world. Il n'y a pas hors texte. How has the Derridean obtained this knowledge? It appears to me that the Derridean has forgotten to take account of himself or herself as homo agents in this description of homo indolens. As for the Derridean's contention that rhetoric exceeds the logic of a text, if this is held as one of deconstruction's great achievements, then deconstruction amounts to commonplaces. It is a truth universally acknowledged in every period of history that rhetoricians can turn logic against itself with the power of facile sophistry, always, however, engaging in self-contradiction along the way. The simplicity of the deconstructionist philosophy is coded in jargon and tangled prose, and therefore even its primordial irrationality can take on Olympian power in the hands of an expert Demosthenes standing before a classroom of English students not schooled in the basics of logic and grammar. By standing back from a text and pronouncing undecidability, the deconstruction really only propagates the chain of deferred meanings towards another value, creating more costs, alternatives foregone, that it shall pursue at a later date in its quest to give life to dead historical facts. In essence, the Derridean wants the text to mean something independent of what the Derridean already discovers in its meaning. She selects a pole, a string, and a carrot, and then straps the pole to her back. She ties the string to the pole and dangles the carrot before her eyes by means of the string, but positions it just out of the reach of her arms. She then sets out to pursue the carrot after intentionally constructing an apparatus that will thwart her aims and objectives by design. Eventually, she realizes that she cannot ever reach the carrot, and so wanders around aimlessly, commenting to every passerby, Nobody can ever get the carrot. Not really, anyways. The microeconomic rationalist then steps into the margin and proves that some people actually do get the carrot because, being savvier than the Derridians, the rationalist walks up to the Derridian and offers a portion of her own dangling apple to the Derridian, which now lies within the Derridian's reach if they both should cooperate and stand close enough to one another in exchange for a bite of the Derridian's carrot. The Marxian Derridian now cries, EXPLOITATION AND ALIENATION! The Derridean wants the carrot, the true carrot that cannot be reached by chasing it alone, and so rejects the offer. I want the carrot, and the carrot is not an apple. The Marxian Derridean is outraged by the fact that exchange reduces scarcity, but that desires cannot manifest in goods without voluntary exchange against the backdrop of scarcity. But what is this transcendent meaning being pursued or not pursued by the Derridean? The answer is that there is not transcendental meaning, a transcendental signified. Though the Derridians were correct in propagating one aspect of subjective value theory, the Derridians err into theology if they believe that they can hold themselves as teleological constants in order to pronounce undecidability in a value-free manner on the intertemporal margin bridging time and space from no space and no time. 
The Derridean foregoes rest and agreement because difference is the measure of satisfaction in the prearranged margins of deconstruction. Once one understands that value is subjective, one is no longer able to hold the value as a constant, as something fixed on a hierarchical scale with a specific cardinal value. After all, the meaning of a text is determined teleologically by context, and meaning has no existent external to each and every operation that determines meaning through an individual course of action in a specific historical empirical context by comparing costs and exercising preferences. I interpret art for personal edification. The cultural Marxist interprets art in order to lambast capitalist society, that is, non-totalitarian societies that allow individuals to pursue their desires within the range of available choices. Aristotle as a Greek can actually mean many things, but it cannot mean them simultaneously. Aristotle is a Greek citizen. He displays many traits of the ethnic Greeks. He speaks the Greek language and, though a Macedonian, is part of the Greek empire by dint of conquest. Consider the possibility of knowing this particular data simultaneously. Aristotle is part of the Greek empire by dint of conquest. In a marketplace of ideas, one can assume that all of these assumptions may be freely debated and exchanged amongst many individuals simultaneously in different exchanges between several auditors and speakers. But one individual may not understand them simultaneously, even though these facts may be known to be simultaneously true, because the non-repeatable spatio-temporal framework of analysis does not preclude their simultaneity, even if an individual cannot understand them all at once as the ramblings of a mob without isolating them individually as subjects about which something has been predicated. I do not read Hamlet in the same way every time that I pick up the play, but Hamlet has the rather annoying habit of dying each time. We would do well to recall Father Tui's maxim. Words may introduce ambiguities because words may have more than one meaning. But a meaning has not two meanings. Perhaps we, especially we scholars, enjoy reading for precisely this purpose. We cut our teeth on the classics to see if we are rising to meet them rather than devolving into continental foppery. Furthermore, by grouping all meaning into a macro variable against which a pronouncement of undecidability is supposed to stand for itself, the deconstructionist is really doing nothing more than attributing to that macro variable the power of a god, which enacts meaning and establishes value as if by itself, ex nihilo. Every pronouncement of deconstruction confirms the apodictic a priori truths of praxeology, amongst which counts the law of marginal utility. Once we understand that some meanings would rank high on a specific writer's preference scales when sifting through historical empirical variables for relevance, more so than perhaps Marxian exploitation theory, patriarchy, heteronormative cisgender bias, or a dominant white male hegemony, the radical offshoots of the post-structuralist cultural studies movement fall flat on their faces as schools of Marxian conspiracy theories run rampant. Man-eating tigers are, are somewhere on every indefinite margin. This is true. But the imminence of man-eating tigers in cosmopolitan Seattle is not the same as the imminence of man-eating tigers on the Indian subcontinent. Indifference is not a matter of intentionality, since intention is driven by ex-ante values, even if the goal is difference and indifference. One cannot sense values ex-ante with an empirical value sensor, to know that what lies on the other side of or is worth the effort, 
But logical meaning is generally not that difficult to grasp because grasping requires a logical mind. The fact that Robert Filmer wrote a treatise on patriarchy as a governmental principle in 1680 in no way suggests that patriarchy was justified as a social principle prior to the rise of international markets and free trade. It is to be noted that five years after the book was published, Englishmen who feared a Catholic monarch found a means to remove that monarch from power by inventing non-patriarchal principles of government, removing a male heir and supplanting his tie to the crown through a related wife of a foreign statholder, and justifying new marriage arrangements for the monarchy that actually empowered a female monarch's role in the nation-state. Certainly, Roger Williams in Connecticut was not acting upon the same principles throughout his life as an abolitionist and religious dissenter who promoted the separation of church and state, and who defined churches as corporations in the market of religion, until his death three years after the publication of Filmer's Patriarcha. Neither did Anne Hutchison prescribe patriarchal principles, nor yet did natural law theorists amongst the levelers who followed John Lilburn in the Interregnum, or even the socialistic utopians of the Cromwellian era, the Diggers. Deconstruction allows a literary critic to justify taking patriarcha all throughout a sojourn through the 1680s and the decades prior, since patriarcha did not spring from the brow of Zeus, and to apply Filmer's condescending supposition that a monarch is the father of his children peoples in scenarios where Filmer's treatise does not apply. One could, under that assumption, paint history with a broad brush and tease out chauvinistic meanings from the words of monarchist and the Restoration Era, who were looking to justify the continued existence of monarchy in the wake of the Cromwellian Republic's dissolution, which was by no means some libertarian revolt guided by a notion of equality before the law. Did not Anne Hutchison rebel against the patriarchal powers of the Puritans? Certainly, she did. She rebelled against the patriarchal powers of the Puritans, which was established by coercive positive law. Did not the levelers rebel against both the dictatorial Puritans under Cromwell and the reign of absolute monarchs? Certainly, they did. They rebelled against the oppression of humankind by small pockets of powerful individuals who claim rights and privileges for themselves that they deny to others by force and aggression, as established by coercive positive law. We need not swirl in a world of relative unfixed motions. Human action never changed. It is. It was. Humans used means with alternative uses to attain ends in the passage of time, and they ranked their preferences on the margin. Genetics changed outputs, both of IQ and strength. Marriage customs pressured away from consanguinity by capital accumulation and the free mobility of labor benefited the masses by diversifying the gene pool, and better pedagogy improved educational outputs through liberalization of the press away from licensing and theocracy. The social conditions that allow or prevent human action from attaining utility, ophthalmity, change. John Lilburn was imprisoned. Roger Williams was shunned. Anne Hutchison was banished. And yet, the latter two simply set up more open societies outside of the societies that persecuted them, which did not aggress against individuals in the same way that they had been aggressed against by coercive and powerful oligarchs who used majority vote or autocratic power to suppress market alternatives to a prevailing orthodoxy. And the natural law arguments of John Lilburn inspired many political thinkers who eventually proposed truly liberal documents, like the Declaration of Independence, and only incidentally formed the Articles of Confederation and the 1789 Constitution, which were political compromises. 
More kinds of uncoerced actions were possible in colonial Rhode Island than in the Puritan-controlled towns of Massachusetts. More kinds of aggressive and coercive actions were possible in colonial Massachusetts than in Connecticut. Some who agreed with the aggressors preferred aggression against their enemies. Some did not. And others who disagreed with the aggressors could find refuge in Rhode Island, where freedom would test their faith, with the rise of newer and more varied kinds of non-aggressive actions that might lead to more disagreement. Rhetorical value does not pyramid on top of logical meaning. Rather, rhetorical meaning is simply another avenue of obtaining satisfaction that presupposes logical meaning. While deferring Browning's imitative craft to Marxian class conflict dogma is certainly a stretch of the imagination and intellect, such a deferral would not be as much of a strain in the discussion of his wife's own masterpiece, Aurora Lee, since the latter is rooted in the problems of kiliastic Christian socialism of the Fabian variety in Victorian England. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the best that has been thought and said. You guys have got to try the cold time. I had five pupils. What is the charge? Eating a meal? We spend so much meal. money now that we could borrow nearly $3 billion a day from foreigners. That's a lot of pockets. The wars never end. Release the world. Release the, 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 the world. You are listening to the Culture and Anarchy Podcast. We can't cut anything until we change our philosophy about what government should do. That assumes he doesn't care about political agendas. But I never care about realized the irrationality of Middle Eastern politics, social, economic status. The wars never end. They they attack us because we've been over there. We've been bombing Iraq for ten years. the best that has been thought and said. As always, featuring the beats of the Passion Hi-Fi on SoundCloud. Their tracks Slaughter and the Spanish Winter. Follow them on SoundCloud, Facebook, and Twitter. Give them a great rating.